charter a course, I will charter a course If we can just get the country to trust us Charter a course, southeast, west and north And along the way we may find justice Hello and welcome back to Charter a Course and to this special episode, which is also the final episode of season three of our podcast. I'm Cheryl Milne, your host. The Asper Center recently marked its 15th anniversary, and to celebrate, we convened a live recording of this podcast, with the tables turned to start and a number of special guests. U of T Law's Dean Uta Brene interviews me in the first half of the podcast, and then four amazing Asper Center alumni discuss their experiences with the center and their current legal practices. But first, we wanted to share a special message that was sent to us by the Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada, the Honorable Arif Varani, an alumnus of the faculty and apparently a fan of the Asper Center. We were delighted to receive his video message in kind words on the occasion of our anniversary. We played the video live at our anniversary event last month, and the podcast recording started right after. So here goes. Good evening. I'm Marie Ferrani, the Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada, and a proud graduate of U of T Law, the class of 1998. It's a privilege to address the 15th anniversary celebration of the David Asper Centre for Constitutional Rights at my alma mater. I'm speaking to you from Ottawa on the traditional and unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg Nation. When I was a student at U of T Law 25 years ago, I lo loaded up on classes like constitutional litigation and comparative constitutional law. I did not have the benefit then of the David Asper Center as a resource. Your success is a testament to the vision of the university and of David Asper himself. You saw the need to focus on constitutional rights and their central place in our legal discourse in Canada. David put it well back in early 2008 when he said, quote, it takes deep commitment to test, study, and evaluate our state of freedom on an ongoing basis. Many of you will know my interest in constitutional law. Before I entered politics, I spent a dozen years working in the constitutional law branch at the Ministry of the Attorney General of Ontario. My time here at U of T Law would have been immeasurably enriched for having had the opportunity to work with the Asper Centre's legal clinic on important constitutional law cases. There is no question that being able to take in lectures from the constitutional litigator in residence would have been incredibly valuable. And a shout out now to Eva Krajewska for taking on this role for this current academic year. Thank you, Junkui Barzo. In my day, Mary Eberts would have occasionally joined Lorraine Weinrib's constitutional litigation class to provide us with the benefit of her insights. But having a formal litigator in residence takes this to the next level and is invaluable to both the school and its students. For students, the Asper Center's resources provide priceless preparation for life in the law and a chance to work with some of our best legal minds on the seminal issues of our time. For faculty, the Asper Center creates space for work outside the lecture hall and the seminar room. For practitioners, people like Ava, it's a place where our best lawyers can give back to our profession, as well as learn from both students as well as faculty. It's an extraordinary resource at what I will selfishly say is our country's best law school. Once again, thank you for giving me the opportunity to say a few words this evening and congratulations on your 15th anniversary. Thank you, merci beaucoup. 
Well, um, I don't think I could have kicked us off better. This really was a wonderful introduction and a wonderful tribute to the Asper Center. Um, so many thanks to Minister Virani for uh, doing us uh, this honor. But I want to join Cheryl and the minister in welcoming you all to our 15th anniversary celebration of the David Asper Center for Constitutional Rights. I'm Jutta Brunet, I'm the Dean of the Faculty of Law, and I'm delighted to be able to play a little part in, in this event in hosting the first segment um, of tonight's uh, proceedings and the event as a whole, which is why we are sitting here with these quite elaborate microphones, um, is being recorded for a podcast that the Asper Center has been producing, a podcast series entitled Charter, A Course this podcast uh, and today's event uh, and everything at the Asper Center emanates from our location at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law on the traditional lands of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca and Mississaugas of the Credit River. Today, this meeting place is still the home to many indigenous people from across Turtle Island and we are grateful to have the opportunity to work and learn and debate on this land and also to celebrate the Asper Center's accomplishments here tonight. Now, as many of you are going to be aware, the Asper Center was started with a generous endowment given to the Faculty of Law by David Asper, and he has continued to provide his support throughout the 15 years of the Center's existence. We are proud of the accomplishments that this gift has enabled and the benefit it has bestowed on the students, faculty, and broader community. And I think we just heard a, a very wonderful capture of um, what the Asper Center has been able to do with this support. Let me just give you a few highlights uh, to illustrate. Over its 15 years of activity, the Asper Center has participated in 38 interventions in cutting-edge constitutional cases at all levels of course, court, most frequently at the Supreme Court of Canada. It has hosted 54 constitutional roundtables with leading academics and constitutional practitioners. It recruited 11 constitutional litigators in residence um, who've shared their expertise with clinic students. It supervised 45 student working groups and these groups have researched and prepared legal positions, research memos, and public legal education materials. The Asper Center has also created 37 publications, uh, including policy briefs, papers, and books, such as public interest litigation in Canada, and the forthcoming equality rights litigation in Canada, which are the product of two symposia of scholars and practitioners, again, organized by the Asper Center. And relevant to Today's event, there have been by now, I'm told, over 20,000 downloads of the Charter A Course podcast, which is now in its third season. And so you're here for the live event. And then if this, um, uh, if you're thirsty for more information about all the things that the Asper Center does, um, there's a wonderful snapshot of this um, in the 2022-23 annual report of the center, which was actually just put up on the faculty website, I believe, yesterday, or at least it's hot off the press, so it's there for you to take a look at, and it really is most impressive. Now, so we're going to start with a chat that I will have with Cheryl Milne, the ASPA Center's Executive Director throughout the Center's tenure at the faculty, and then 
The second half of the event will be a panel discussion, in case you're wondering who all of these chairs were for. And that discussion will be moderated by our constitutional litigator in residence, Eva Krajewska, and we're very much looking forward uh, to that. So let me start to warm you up a little bit, Cheryl, with a, a few questions to get our conversation going. Um, so I've already suggested that you were the inaugural executive director of the Asper Center. And so here you are now, 15 years later, it probably seems both like a long time, but also a kind of like a blink. What was it like getting the center off the ground? Because I imagine that's no small feat. It was pretty daunting at first, I have to say, because it, I think it wasn't clear really what the center was going to be. It was uh, something new. It is something unique. Uh, in in Canada, I think in and we looked at other kinds of centers even around the world, and there wasn't anything at that time that was quite like what we were doing. We kicked it off with a what we called a working dinner, um, where we solicited. It's a the, very nice way to kick something off. <laughs> where we solicited the expert views of the le of leading constitutional lawyers in the country and our own constitutional law experts here at the faculty. And it was followed by the following day a colloquium on strategies for successful charter litigation. So that's what we started. So I had this influx or infusion of all of this expertise to try to help me guide what the center was going to be doing. So much planting went, went into which cases we would undertake and how we want to situate the center in respect to constitutional arguments and scholarship. We came up with case selection guidelines that we wanted to focus on access to justice as a key element of the cases that we got involved with. But one of our first events was for a more general public. It was a much watched and attended panel on the prorogation controversy that brought to light issues of unwritten constitutional conventions. So uh, it was more of a political science debate really, but one that had significant implications for how Parliament was governed when then Prime Minister Stephen Harper prorogued Parliament to avoid facing difficult questions about handing over Afghan detainees to face torture and abuse. So that was our first event, um, and it was um, sort of oversubscribed. We we it, and it was one of the first ones that we did where we actually had it uh, remote as well as in person, and so. We, things are much smoother now here at the faculty. We do a lot of things online, but uh, that one, there were, uh, um, it was one of the first times we did that. There's a hilarious photo of me uh, that was taken when we were, the, the faculty was doing some promotional photos uh, for an alumni magazine, and uh, they asked me um, to pose in a boat that was perched on stairs going down to the old uh, the old part of this building before it was renovated. It was never used, but it was supposed to, to actually depict the turbulent waters of the prorogation. And it's it's quite funny, and someday I may put it up, but uh, it's all it's kind of been kept secret. But it was it really um, but it's kind of um, ironic that that was sort of the first picture taken of me for it because now we have the podcast Charter, a course, which is actually um, sort of coming around full circle to that theme. In subsequent years, we followed that panel with the workshops that you mentioned about um, public interest litigation as well as, um, but other things that were 
also related more generally to the state of Canada's constitutional democracy, and we, we um, actually published reports. But our work has always been a combination of advocacy, research, and education. Those have been the main themes. Well, thank you. I mean, I have to say, I'm very curious about that picture. I'm going <laughs> to think it has to appear somewhere at some point. <laughs> and so then you did get off the ground, though, relatively quickly and and swung into full action. Um, your first intervention, if I'm not mistaken, um, before the Supreme Court of Canada versus HMQ was in 20, uh, was it 2010? And yeah, uh, we actually appeared in 20, um, 2009, so it was within the first year. So the decision um, came out in the 2010. The yeah. decision came out in 2010. That's, that's right. pretty amazing. So can you tell us a little more about that? Well, first we have to thank the Criminal Lawyers Association and then President Frank Adario, also an alum of the faculty, who allowed us to join and, and represent them in a case that seemed um, to perfectly represent what we wanted to do in our interventions. And so the focus really in that case was on access to justice. It was about um, the, um, the constitutional jurisdiction of the Ontario Re Review Board, which reviews the treatment of persons um, not found not criminally responsible for crimes under the Criminal Code of Canada um, due to mental illness. And at, as um, at issue was the board's jurisdiction under Section 24.1 of the Charter to find a charter violation and provide appropriate and just remedies. So I thought, um, first of all, that it was best to join with an established intervener um, to to essentially introduce us to the court, because who are we and what is our history? And so that's why I thank the Criminal Lawyers Association. Um, and um, it was also sort of the first partnership that can, has continued um, throughout the 15 years with Professor Kent Roach and his expertise on remedies um, that, um, that really kind of helped. Um, he helped draft the legal argument and then conveniently for me, um, was out of the country on the day that the, the case was to be argued. So it allowed me to represent the Asper Centre on our first appearance at the Supreme Court of Canada. You clearly left an impression because there's been several decisions um, in which the Supreme Court of Canada made specific reference to Asper Centre arguments. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I, I want to start by saying it's not usual for the Supreme Court of Canada to reference intervener arguments directly. You, you're usually left combing the reasoning, hoping to see snippets of your factum that you filed. Um, however, we have been directly um, referenced um, in support of decisions in three cases. Um, the first direct mention uh, was Bedford um, v. Canada. And the ben Bedford case was about a challenge to the um, provisions in the criminal code relating to sex work. We took a very unusual or um, sort of different approach than many of the other interveners. We argued about stare decisis. That was the requirement to provide to follow prece precedent in constitutional litigation. And we were represented by Joseph Arve, who um, is a, was um, our inaugural constitutional litigator in residence and myself. So I, I worked with him. And I will talk a little bit more about Joe later, but it was, um, uh, you know, it was a, an issue that he had addressed in in writing, and it's one that I found felt very uh, appropriate for the Asper Center as well. We sometimes take on the kind of issue 
that seems more academic, seems a little less um, accessible, a little more um, um, difficult, but has an essential element that is really important. So in this case, it's whether or not a trial judge coming upon new evidence, uh, a new situation, uh, has to follow a precedent from 20 years ago that was decided under a different set of circumstances. And um, and the, the we were mentioned because the court, and it was the um, then Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin that, that agreed with our approach. And I'm just going to quote, so I have some papers here so I don't, in front of me so I don't forget some things, but also so I can quote. So she says, the intervener, the David Asper Center for Constitutional Rights, argues that the common law principle of stare decisis is subordinate to the Constitution and cannot require a court to uphold a law which is unconstitutional. It submits that lower courts should not be limited to acting as mere scribes, creating a record and findings without conducting a legal analysis. I agree, is what she said. So that was really nice. Very and she nice. goes on further, and I'm not going to go, um, but quoting from our factum, but that was really a nice... Intended to say, oh, go on. But. <laughs> I can go on for another one. So the second time this, this happened was the case of Ontario NG. And it goes back to a remedies case, and again, the expertise of, of Professor Roach, and another case involving the Ontario Review Board. But this time, the issue was the constitutionality of legislation related to the sex offender registry and the equality rights of a person who was found not criminally responsible due to mental illness, once again, but then subsequently discharged. And the court rendered a declaration of unconstitutionality that, that, um, to the provisions that didn't allow him to be removed from the registry, but suspended it to allow the government time to amend the legislation. It also allowed the applicant to receive a constitutional exemption from the period of that, that, that period of time of the suspension and an immediate removal from the list. So there was a really compelling um, personal story that went along with that and, and his, his rehabilitation. And so this is the quote from, from that case. It says, I would accept the Asper Center's invitation to articulate a principled approach to remedies for legislation that violates the Charter. Kent Roach argues, and he cites one of, of Professor Roach's articles, and the intervener, the Asper Center, submits that Charter remedies should be granted in accordance with principled discretion, a middle ground between strong or pure discretion, which would give judges free reign to fashion remedies as they say fit, and rule-based discretion, which would tightly constrain judges from hard and fast rules. I agree. <laughs> Once again, those, those very nice words to hear when, when you're on the side of, of, of an intervener trying to get the court to listen to you. And then there's one last one. Um, a third case is the most recent example, um, was the constitutional challenge to the Safe Third Country Agreement. It's the case of the Canadian Council for Refugees versus the Attorney General of Canada. We joined with LEAF, the Legal Education and Action Fund, and West Coast LEAF to argue that the failure of the judge at the trial level in that case, at the federal court level, to address the Section 15 argument that was made by the claimants was an error and not appropriate judicial restraint. So the Federal Court of Appeals said it was fine. The judge at the first instance actually made a finding that the, um, the provisions related to the Safe Third Country Agreement did contravene Section 7 and said, well, I don't, we don't have to go on about Section 15. 
But while the Supreme Court of Canada upheld that finding about the um, Section 7 breach, that there was no Section 7 breach, it cited our arguments to grant the appeal on Section 15 grounds and send it back to the federal court for a hearing on the merits. So we're now in the process of working with the, the applicants in the case and considering, once again, in partnership with those organizations to intervene again in that case. And that's one of the other things that we partnered with the Criminal Lawyers Association early on, in a sense to gain credibility as an intervener, but we've continued to follow that pattern where it's about expertise and about pooling resources and about not duplicating so that in an appropriate case, we will in intervene with other interveners so that we can really present a very robust argument. Wow, this is really quite remarkable. And you were saying a moment ago that you were conscious at the outset that you needed to be introduced and gain credibility, but it does sound a little as if you now no longer need any introduction, but lest it come across as if we've rigged this all to <laughs> just make it look glowing, there were also some not so positive comments, if I'm not mistaken. Is there something you can tell us about that? Well, the role of interveners, I think, is to push boundaries and to make arguments that situate the party's arguments themselves into more, a, more, a broader context. And so sometimes we get pushback from the court. And I'll just talk about a recent decision. I mean, we haven't been criticized too harshly in cases, but we don't, they don't always pick up our arguments and sometimes they ignore them completely. But in a recent decision of the Supreme Court of Canada, um, a case called McGregor and Her Majesty the Queen. We were not mentioned by name, but simply lumped together with other interveners who, um, with us, the, were, were invited by the court to revisit a previous decision related to the territorial reach and limits of the charter. This is We were asking for the court to look again at the case of R versus HAPE. And there's been a lot of academic criticism about the, the way the, the court has... Um, articulated the test about the reach of the charter beyond the borders of Canada. Surprisingly, we were granted intervener standing based on those proposed arguments. You don't get into a case unless you tell the court what you intend to argue. Um, they want to hear, it's not a full argument, but they want to hear fairly clearly what you intend to argue. And so that's what we said we intended to, to argue. Um, but then, you know, once we got in, they then told us that we should not have asked them to reconsider hate because the parties had not done so. <laughs> so, and sometimes the parties won't actually ask the kinds of questions that interveners will because it's not in the interest of their clients. And we will sometimes push, and sometimes you get pushed back on those things. But I think that's just part of the role of being an intervener. Yeah, it would be it would be a little bit unusual if none of this uh, were to happen. Now let's turn to another really important part of what the Asper Center does. So it does all of the things that you've described really well, but a really important part of the Asper Center activities also is student involvement. So students have been given and are given the opportunity to work on all of the interventions through the clinic and over the summers. And so maybe you can tell us a little bit more um, about how the clinic teaches students experientially. So like most um, clinical education settings, the students learn by doing and working on our actual cases. Unfortunately, the levels of court that we are appearing in, uh, students can't appear. So unlike downtown legal services, where students are actually appearing on behalf of clients, 
the cases that we are involved in, for the most part, students can't do that because the rules don't allow them to. But they work in teams that we put together within the clinic to, to gather the, the background and do the drafts of the arguments and do, will do drafts of factums for us on those cases. It's a pedagogical approach that involves the application of actual theory. Um, there's a David Kolb's theory of experiential learning is what is applied in the clinic setting. There's a four-stage process to that. One is concrete learning, so that is working on the actual cases and doing the work that needs to be done. Then reflective observation. So the students have to, in the clinic, write reflections on a regular basis on the work they're doing and on what happens in the clinic setting. There's a next step is abstract conceptualization, where they take that reflection and the work that they do and sort of turn it around to say, well, how can I do things better or different the next time around? And then they engage in this active experimentation. Now, the students are only in the clinic for one term, so there's not a, there's not a lot of room for doing that. So we try and do simulations of factum writing, memo writing, and that sort of thing to, to at least model that. But one of the key th things that I find both as a teacher, I, uh, I think it's important to do this. And my, my background is also in social work. Uh, so this, this is a model that's, been, that's used very regularly in social work settings, has been for many years. And law is a little more new to, the, to it. But, but I think this reflection is really key. But I also really thoroughly enjoy reading the students' reflections. And their thoughtful approach to their own learning is really something that I find inspiring. Fantastic. And so we already mentioned the Constitutional Litigator in Residence program. This was created, I believe, also to enhance student learning, actually, or mm -hmm. at least in part. And so maybe you could tell us a little bit more about how this was started and who's been participating over the years. So Joseph Ar Arve who died in December 2020, um, quite sadly. He contacted us to suggest that he come and work with the Asper Center for a month in 2012. And uh, for those of you who are not familiar with, with Joe Arvey, he was an exceptional constitutional litigator, committed to human rights in Canada, and counsel in a number of the most important Supreme Court of Canada cases. Um, not just the charter, but also uh, sort of Aboriginal rights and, and just other kinds of public interest litigation more generally. Um, he represented us, as I said, in the Bedford case, and we developed that argument around stereodecisis together. And I think he, was, he felt very strongly about um, the importance of that. And that, that, that decision in Bedford was then carried forward to the, the next really big case called Carter, um, in Canada, and Carter was the um, uh, challenge to the provisions of the criminal code that prevented medical assistance in dying. We did not intervene in that case, but the, the reasoning in Bedford was then carried forward into, in terms of stereodecisis because there had been a previous case called Rodriguez in which the court had said that those provisions were constitutional. And as many people know, in the Carter case, they, they struck those provisions down, and we now have a regime of medical assistance in dying in Canada. And it was an issue that, was, that, that Joe Arve felt very strongly about. But he was the inspiration for the continuing role that has been incorporated into our teaching and advocacy. So I thought, this is a great idea that Joe, I want to do this more, and I want to work with more of these um, inspiring litigators. And since then, we have had 
John Norris, now Justice John Norris of the federal court, um, Mary Eberts. You heard Mary Eberts being mentioned by the Attorney General. Um, she's a, also an inspiring and you know a profound um, litigator herself. Rajanand from We're Foles, Janet Miner, who was with and uh, who retired from the constitutional law branch. Um, for the Attorney General of Ontario, so uh, we were able to have her come because there wasn't a conflict. So normally it's hard to get a government lawyer to come into the clinic because we're often against government in our interventions, but it, but with um, Janet, she had retired and she was able to bring that perspective to the students. Brees Davies, who is now also Justice Brees Davies, <laughs> um, so they're very, and who has, has um, had brought criminal law perspective, uh, Susan Ursel. Um, Nader Hassan, Jonathan Rudin from Aboriginal Legal Services, uh, Jessica Orkin was our constitutional litigator um, last year from Goldblatt's, and this year, Eva Krajewski, who's working with the students and working with me. And so the way we conceive of it is that they co-teach the clinic with me. So bringing that another perspective than just mine, I mean, I do have my own litigation perspective. For many years, I was litigator at Justice for Children and Youth before I came here. I did do some of the, the um, constitutional cases from that clinic, but I worked for a very specific kind of client. And, and so by bringing in other constitutional litigators, um, the students get the benefit of a range of approaches and individual expertise that is also, and it's also just great for me too, because they're just wonderful people to work with. Yeah, this really sounds fabulous. So we've talked about litigation, we've talked about the involvement and the teaching of the students. What what other sorts of projects or events have you organized over the years? Maybe give us a couple of examples. Sure. We've, we, over the years, we've hosted a series of symposia that have aimed at bringing academic perspective together with the practical. So strategies for successful charter claims, social science evidence in charter litigation, constitutional remedies those kinds of topics. We've, we're proud of the two publications that we have, the Public Interest Litigation in Canada that uh, actually produces royalties, which is surprising for an academic book, <laughs> and the forthcoming Litigating Equality in Canada, which will be published uh, in 2024. So we're just going through the, we'll be going through the proofs very soon. And we host constitutional roundtables for academics who come and we have two Law Foundation of Ontario funded projects, actually. One is a guide to police complaints, which is kind of in a holding pattern because the government of Ontario has not yet passed all the regulations. So we've the students have worked really hard on creating that guide, and we're just waiting for the regulations to pass before we can um, make it available online. And I'm working with a uh, prominent litigator in the area of child welfare, Dr. Barbara Fallon, on a child welfare tool toolkit, which is marrying the, the law around child welfare with the evidence in, in an area that people don't often see as, as, as being um, an area of constitutional rights, but they are profound rights in terms of the family and, and has been recognized by the courts. And I just want to say that um, we have a number of student working groups and uh, about eight years ago, we hired a program coordinator, Tal Schreier, who has really helped to expand the kind of work that, that we do and who works closely with our, our student working groups and helps to put together a lot of our events. And she's an essential partner in what everything that's being done. It's not just me. What are the plans going forward? 
I assume you have some, given everything we've, we've heard so far. <laughs> well, we, we do have a formal strategic plan that you can find on our website. It, it has the kind of language that you would expect in a, in a strategic plan. We want to maintain our reputation, which is something I'm quite proud of. And we want to strengthen the Centre's core competence of education, constitutional expertise and collaboration, and of course, to expand the center's capacity. So that's that's your usual sort of strategic plan speak. But practically speaking, I would like to see us take on a more on more ground level cases, such as our voting age challenge. I haven't mentioned that case, and and we might hear more about it from our uh, alumni who are going to be speaking. But um, that is a case in which we're in, we are representing 13 young people from across Canada in partnership with Justice for Children and Youth on a challenge to the voting age in Canada. And, and I think that's one of the legacies of Joe Arve's legal practice was to take on those ground level cases. A lot of constitutional litigators are quite happy to just intervene and we have been quite happy to do that too. But I think we, we need cases to intervene in and so it's important that we do some of those ground level challenges. And there's a lot out there where people can't get representation. I would also like to target legislation and policy advocacy to have more meaningful input before litigation becomes actual, actually necessary. And as I said before, we, we continue to work um, productively in partnership with other organizations. And, and we tend to sometimes bring organizations together to talk about certain issues, and I want to continue to do that. And particularly because I think that helps to further our access to justice mandate by making sure that um, we're working together to, to further these, um, these initiatives. Um, I'm also really proud of our intervention in the Mathur case, which is the climate change case here in Ontario, and uh, we are being represented by Eva um, in that case. And that, um, both that, along with the Voting Age Challenge, represents sort of, I think, cutting-edge litigation, and it's critical, really, both of them, to how our democracy works and who is included. And so I think that they're really important cases. And so, just to sort of sum up... Um, when Tal Schreier joined us, um, we were able to increase the work that we did. David Asper has continued to be generous with the center, and we and we but we've also had to look for to other sources of funding as well. We'll continue to do that. So it's my hope and expectation that we can offer opportunities for work with the center through fellowships and academic partnerships that will further expand our impact in the near future. And to continue, and you'll hear a little bit about that, that in our second half of the program, that of reaching out to our alumni who now are quite experienced litigators after 15 years, and we're reaching out to them to do some of that pro bono representation and representation of the center in the interventions. And I want to continue to do that so that we're not just training the students here while they're here, but that we're also providing opportunity for junior and so not not so junior <laughs> council to be representing the the Asper Center in addition to myself. I always type, like taking cases on myself too. Wonderful. Well, you've really given us um, a, an amazing set of highlights of the work that has taken place over the last 15 years. Um, a, a really sort of, it's like a, a tableau, a panorama of all kinds of remarkable accomplishments. And so I think before we introduce the second half of um um, of the evening's proceedings, I thought this is a good moment to um, give a round of applause to um, Cheryl and the entire team at Asper and the Asper Center for 
um, all of this work that you've described so well. Thank you. All right, so this is a very nice setup to turn the event over to the constitutional litigator and resident Eva Krajewska, uh, who will chat with um, some of the alumni of the center's clinical program. Um, Eva has practiced civil litigation for 14 years, specializing in public and constitutional law, and she practiced at Borden Lardner Gervais for 12 years before joining, uh, joining Hennen Hutchison Robitaille. LLP in 2022. She's appeared at all levels of court, including the Supreme Court of Canada, on important constitutional matters. Um, we're delighted, uh, once again, that you're the constitutional litigator in residence. We're delighted you're here, and I'm thrilled that um, you will now be introducing the panel guests and having a conversation with them. Hi, everyone. Good evening. We have. So it's my great pleasure to introduce our panel of alumni of the David Asper Center, and I've actually had the pleasure of working with two of these alumni on other constitutional and public law issues. So they've definitely taken what they've learned at the David Asper Center into their practice. So why don't we go from oldest in law years <laughs> to youngest. Neil has a general practice in public law in Ottawa at Altius Van Ert, a boutique litigation firm in Ottawa and Vancouver. Uh, after he graduated from U of T, he clerked at the Federal Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court. And he, before his law times, he uh, worked as an environmental economist at the Federal Public Service. Uh, so next in law years, Geetha Pulipalai. She's an associate at Goldblatt Partners in Toronto. Her practice includes employment, professional regulation, and constitutional litigation, and I've had the opportunity to litigate with Neo when we were both at BLG. And I've had the opportunity to litigate alongside Geetha on uh, student politics matters, which was lots of fun. Who's the next in lawyers? I'm not really sure. You both graduated the same year. Okay, well, Keeley. <laughs> uh, Keeley is an associate at Lensner Slat in Toronto. She has a broad litigation practice in commercial disputes, corporate governance, and professional liability issues. And she was not just a student at the Asper Center, but also worked as a research assistant. And then Ryan Deshbande is counsel at Litigation, Extradition, and Advisory Division at the Department of Justice of Canada. So he's on the other side of matters sometimes, but he has the opportunity to practice with a focus on constitutional law, administrative law, and civil litigation. And he also clerked at the Divisional Court. So... Let's just get started. The first question to help you get to know them a little bit better is, what was the work that you did at the Asper Center and how does it relate to what you do now? So why don't we start from this side this time? Keely, do you want to sure. begin? Sure. Um, so I started at the Asper Center when I was in 1L um, and I was in a student working group uh, that did some of the police accountability and uh, police kind of rights guides um, as a 1L student. And then the summer after 1L, I worked as a research assistant at the center uh, and did <laughs> everything. That was truly the highlight of my law school, I would say, was that summer. And then flowing into being in the clinic course when I started my second year of law school, um, where I worked on the voting rights, kind of building that case up um, just in the early days of it. Uh, and then I also led a student working group in my second year. And so I kind of 
did quite a lot with the Asper Center and, and really enjoyed it. And now I'm yeah just doing kind of general litigation, um, using a lot of the skills that I that I picked up at the Asper Center. Ryan, so I've been involved. I was involved with the Asper Center all three years of law school. In my first year, I was a member of the Immigration and Refugee Law Working Group, where I provided research support for the Safe Third Country Agreement Challenge that Cheryl mentioned earlier. And in 2L and 3L, um, I co-founded and led the Sex Workers' Rights Working Group, where we provided research support to um, what became the Canadian Alliance for Sex Work Law Reform Challenge, as well as building partnerships with community organizations at the time. And in 3L, I was a clinic student um, where I helped develop the record for the Mather case with uh, Nader Hassan as the constitutional litigator in residence at the time. And my Asper Center work is directly on point to what I do now um, in the sense that Canada is a respondent on several of the cases I just mentioned. And this also means I'm conflicted out of working on those cases, but uh, that's not something I'm too upset about. Um, I was really proud of the work that I did for the Asper Center in those cases. Um, and watching them progress through the courts has really been valuable. Um, and in general, though, as a cons junior constitutional litigator, the work is very, very similar to what I did at the Asper Center um, as a law student. So much of my work involves charter-based constitutional research and case building, um, and that's something I got to do as an Asper Clinic student, and I continue to do it now. Ita? So I took the clinic in 3L, and the case that I worked on was Frank in Canada, which was a case about um, the voting rights of non-resident Canadians. And so I worked on the motion to intervene when I was in the clinic and also worked on researching and the factum as well. But ultimately what happened was, and I don't recall exactly why, the hearing was postponed and it happened after I had graduated. But yeah, my experience working on that case actually funnily enough is was the Asper Center was represented in that case by Lewis Century, who's a colleague of mine, and that's actually how I got to know Lewis and how I actually kind of have the job that I have now at Goldblatt Partners. So definitely had a huge impact on my career and my work. Neil? I was a clinic student in my second year uh, of law school here at U of T, and I was very fortunate that the clinic schedule that year aligned perfectly in that the Asper Center had just been granted leave to intervene on a case called Henry. I showed up in the clinic and the case was ready to move forward to the Supreme Court. So I think we're probably one of the rare situations where the students, just because of the timing, were able to work on the intervention and then actually go to the hearing of the case, which was a great opportunity for me. And I would say the, the main thing I, I've taken from my time at the Asper Center was learning that critical skill as a constitutional litigator of being able to take big and difficult and complex ideas and distilling them in writing to something that is as straightforward as possible, as palatable as possible for, for judges and, and really sort of that translation exercise. And that is my favorite part of of being a litigator, and it's something that I uh, definitely saw the kernels of when I was a student at the Asper Center. Okay, so now I want you I want to take you back to when you were a student and you were doing your course selection. Why did you choose to do this course? What did what were you looking for from the clinical experience, and how did that how did this experience fit into your general law school experience? Could we start with Ryan this time? Sure. Okay. Yeah. 
So I had always been interested in human rights, constitutional law, but also big picture issues like public policy and international law. And I really tried to dedicate my law school experience to that. So I, the opportunity came up for the Asper Clinic. Actually, I was going to go on exchange and then it was canceled because of COVID. Um, so when I had to redo my course selection, um, I was very excited that, that I was able to do the Asper Center Clinic um, and get the practical experience of being a constitutional lawyer. But it was really impactful for me at the time, um, largely because it solidified my, de- my desire to practice constitutional law. Um, you know, there's a lot of financial and social pressure to um, go into big law and pay off um, my debt as quickly as possible. But doing the clinic actually helped me realize that I want to do what I like as a career. Um, and constitutional law was something that I really liked doing. And so I made the choice um, to try and find a career where I could practice constitutional law um, as much as possible. And doing that with the government is one of the best ways to do it. I like uh, pretty much 60% um, of my workload is constitutional law and like big picture issues. And I'm really lucky to be able to do that. I was really drawn to the opportunity to do like practical legal writing and and to and yeah to work on an ongoing case. I sort of structured my third year in this way where I I did an intensive at DLS and I did the Asper clinic and so I wasn't actually in school very much, which is something I regret now because you know I didn't take things like tax law or trusts. Um, but still, but do you it was, practice in tax? No. You know, as an as an employment lawyer, it's actually really important to understand income tax, which I regret not learning. But it's one of those things where I think that you know, you it's so hard to pick what you're going to do in law school. And I still feel really grateful that like that this was the opportunity that I got, and that it's something that I do feel confident when an intervention comes comes across my desk now. And I have done interventions as a lawyer. Um, and you can't learn everything in law school. You're always going to have to learn some things while, or learn a lot while you're in practice. But it was really great to work with, you know, to work with professors and sort of like the case group that was thinking about the case, see another lawyer work on it, um, and how they thought about it, how they approached it, how they sort of took the big picture and narrowed it down into a factum, that sort of stuff. So I, I definitely really appreciated that opportunity. So I think, as I said, I had been working at um, I had been working at the clinic at, or at the center as a research assistant the summer before. So I kind of knew what was coming down the pipe a little bit when when it was time to apply for a spot in the clinics, and I was super excited um, about what I knew they would be working on, which was this youth voting age um, stuff. And I was really interested because I think up to that point in law school, like you know, as a one al, you're reading cases and you're kind of like thinking about things only the way that like an appellate level court thinks about them. Um, But this was this opportunity to kind of think like from truly ground zero, okay, who would even be like the litigants in this case? Who would, who would our representative person be like, where do we find young people who might be interested in this and want to be involved? Like what types of arguments could we like, you know, dream of making, which ones would be more reasonable. So we had people doing that research. We had people doing um, like social science research, looking at studies that would maybe give us something to think about in terms of like cognitive abilities at different ages. And and 
we were doing um, consultations with stakeholders and like, you know, Cheryl was just like quarterbacking this whole thing. And I had never thought about all of these things as pieces that would, you know, anyone would need to think about when you're putting together a, a challenge like the one we were thinking about. And so um, I had a feeling that it was going to be a great semester. And so, yeah, I was very lucky to to be involved in that. And it kind of is something that can, even when the clinic ended, um, I had the opportunity, you know, we spoke to the CBC about the work that we had done and people still every so often, I think, well, I'm sure all the time for, for the center reach out and want to talk about this and it's continuing to move through the courts. So um, just a really, really different side of litigation that I had not imagined, you know, happen. So, yeah. Right. And probably more analogous to what you do now, which is building a case. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Neil. So I um, was very lucky to have uh, recently retired Professor Rogerson as my 1L constitutional law prof. And I loved it from day one of that course. And I thought this is, I, I want my practice to involve this in some way. And so I actually just went to her office hours one day after class to get her sense of what I should do while I was in law school to try and help that happen as much as possible. And she said, go work at the Asper Center for Cheryl Milne. And so that's what I did. <laughs> if only everyone can make our life decisions for us that way. <laughs> um, okay, so we're going to shift a little bit to your time post-Asper. Um, Neil and Gita, you both have had the opportunity to work for the Asper Center and do cases for the Asper Center since graduating as lawyers. Can you talk a little bit about the cases that you've worked on and that experience? Neil, do you want to start this time? Sure. So uh, it, it's the work is ongoing. Um, I'm I along with uh, my co-counsel Megan Stevens, who's a, a renowned litigator here in Toronto. She was a former head of the uh, Crown Law Criminal and and the executive director in LEAF, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, we got together to approach the Asper Center um, to see if they would be interested in working on a case called Power out of New Brunswick. And it's a case about the availability of charter damages under Section 24.1, where the losses claimed are due to the operation of an unconstitutional law. So I won't go into the, the nitty-gritty of, of it all, but there, there are cases about personal remedies under 24.1 um, in the nature of damages in situations where someone has been affected by a discretionary decision made by a, a public actor. This case is really about what happens if the law itself is creating the loss and are damages available in those circumstances. And so we, uh, I, I believe we started in the spring or summer with our application for uh, leave to intervene, so worked on on that process, and were um, granted leave. Dealt with some strange procedural decisions from the court about those applications for leave and timing. And the hearing is at the beginning of December. Uh, so we, along with a few other public interest interveners, will be participating, along with every possible uh, state intervener in Canada, well, attorneys general, as well as speakers of the Senate and all, all kinds of other legislature uh, representatives. So it'll be an interesting uh, hearing. And uh, when, I, when I heard about the case, I thought the David Asper Center is the perfect place to look at the, this 
primarily because of its history dealing with constitutional remedy issues and Ken Roach's expertise. But also it's an important case that really comes down to what what is the charter trying to protect in Canada? There is a fundamental question in this case about what if charter rights can be abandoned, in what circumstances can we abandon them? And the appellant in the case is the Attorney General of Canada, and they're trying to say that uh, in all cases where the legislature is involved, we don't have to worry about charter rights and individual losses. And there are lots of other organizations, including the David Asper Center, that don't think that's the right approach to constitutional law and charter law in Canada, and I'm thrilled to be involved in the intervention. I'm going to look up the date of that hearing and watch it on live on the webcast. <laughs> well, it's going to be a long hearing. It's going to be a long one. It sounds like it's going to be a long one. Because month. they got more intervenors than I think they were planning, and they haven't rescheduled to two days. So it's going to be a long day. Yeah, I might be there. I'm, I might be giving submissions at 8 p.m. for all I know, but uh, looking forward to it. Geetha, what about you? I worked on Morris, which is a case at the Ontario Court of Appeal, um, which considered... Um, when and how uh, criminal sentencing judges should take into account background factors and systemic factors specifically relating to the impact that systemic racism has had uh, on offenders generally, um, and in particular on black offenders. And I worked on that case. I, I juniored for Nader Hassan, who was um, actually one of my professors when I was in law school. As compared to my experience as a student on Frank, I definitely played you know, much larger role, not only in the intervention motion, but in drafting, in drafting the factum um, with Nader's guidance. Um, and I think it, it, was, it was a great opportunity because it's, it's a case that, that draws upon, even though I don't practice criminal law, I'm really interested in the intersection of like equality rights and the criminal law and, you know, was always really passionate about Section 15. And it was a great opportunity to work with Nader, who you know, has, has done so many interventions and really knows how to approach an intervention. Like He's ambitious in what he wants uh, the court to say in terms of accepting a position that his client is advancing, um, but also kind of practical in terms of what, what you think you can get a court to do. And so even though there, I think, the decision, you know, was was disappointing in some ways, but actually the position that the Asper Center advanced, which is that uh, a black offender shouldn't have to demonstrate a causal link between the background factors and their offense in order for the background factors to be considered, that position was was accepted by the court. Um, yeah, and it and it has um, also led me to do other interventions for the Black Legal Action Center now, but learning from, from what I was able to observe, you know, juniorng for more experienced constitutional litigators. Okay, so Ryan, even though you now work on the other side, how, how has your experience and time of the Asper Center, how does it inform your work now? So I wrote out a mini essay in response to this question. Oh but boy. <laughs> I'll keep it brief, but it, it just speaks to it having a very big impact on me. Um, I do think my Asper Center experiences have made me a better lawyer and a better public servant too. I believe that government lawyers have special ethical duties on them that 
um, private sector lawyers um, don't necessarily have. And I think a lot of my colleagues share that view. Um, of course, our primary duty is to our client, but and in a constitutional case, that means defending the laws of parliament as they exist. But we also have to consider um, this concept of the public interest in our work. And it's very elusive, and it differs from case to case, and it differs from lawyer to lawyer. But my experience at the Asper Center helped me develop a very broad understanding of the public interest in a way that I apply daily um, and in a way that I hope benefits Canadians. Um, there are practical examples of that. So when the DOJ receives a constitutional lawsuit, we as the litigators are the first stop in developing the government's position. Um, and that process is heavily influenced, in, like in any situation, by our experiences, our understanding of the law, um, and our perspective on what the public interest requires. So in my time at the Asper Center, I was considering very unique interests youth, sex workers, refugees. I needed to empathize with groups that I often had little or no connection to. And that, um, and, but to develop, to develop a position um, that actually benefits them and protects their rights. Now, as a government lawyer, I am usually, not always, but most of the time on the other side of things. But the practical experience of empathizing with a group and understanding how the law affects them in a particular situation um, has a profound influence on how I formulate positions um, in response to um, lawsuits that we get and how I argue cases. Of course, everything we do is subject to very lengthy approvals, but the initial development and the final product is really driven by that. And um, as, as has been mentioned, my Asper experience also um, helps me understand how to build a constitutional case and in a way that really helps me hit the ground running as a junior litigator. I understand what goes into building a record um, and having a solid factual foundation to support my position. And that's something that's not easy to do when you're dealing with issues that affect the whole country. Um, you need expert evidence, individual evidence, legislative histories. And this thinking also helps with my non-constitutional files. So for example, I'm working at a case at the Environmental Protection Tribunal of Canada, where the tribunal will be interpreting the regulations prohibiting microbeads for the very first time. And this could have huge impacts on the environment and health, but I feel prepared for that um, largely because of my Asper Center experience, which has helped me think big, but also think practically um, when developing cases. And Keely, I'm sure you have a very broad general litigation practice and the best tradition of Lensners. How do you feel you use your experience at the Asper Center in your practice today? Yeah, I think I think the main thing that I bring from the Asper Center into the work that I do now is maybe just the kind of like it's gonna sound silly to say, but like the like joy to be litigating. And I think it's not the same subject matter, but just the kind of approach where it's like, how lucky are we to sit down and be talking to colleagues and like, you know, picking apart ideas that we have and thinking about how to turn it into arguments. And th like, you know, as, as Ryan said, thinking about, okay, and so th this is our idea. We're all really excited about it. Okay. Now we've got to build a record and we've got to think about, um, you know, what research needs to be done. I, I really think that it would, not be um, an overstatement to say that I, I don't know that I would be in litigation if I hadn't had the experience I had at the Asper Center. I don't think I really knew what, what litigation involved that much until I got to watch these amazing lawyers and like work with um, other students 
doing this type of thing that I thought, oh, okay, people get to do this as, you know, as their job. And this is something that I would love to do. And so I think that really, aside from the practical skills, and I I was reflecting back before this event today, I think that we had a session in the clinic where Justice Feldman came in and was helping us work on factums and you know, think about what an overview should look like. So there were for sure practical skills. I think my first introduction to docketing was through the clinic also. And so things like that have been so helpful, but really it's just this kind of view of litigation that it is something creative and collaborative and aspirational. And, you know, if you can find a little bit of that in, and you can find a little bit of that in every case that you touch, even if it's not, you know, like the, the, amazing, pressing, social, constitutional issues of the day, you can find a little bit. And so I try to do that. And I, and I think that that's um, an ask for center kind of legacy. Right. And I like at the beginning of the, the course, we talk about how to work and we talk about collaborative learning. And I think in litigation, working as a team and collaboratively working on things is essential. So to just, as you say, very early on in law school, kind of learn that that is a really good approach of of building a case is wonderful to have and take with you into your practice. Wonderful. Well, thank you all very much for your insights and your thoughts and your ex- and sharing your experiences uh, today. Well, that's a wrap for this episode and for the third season of our podcast. We're already looking forward to working on another season next year, so be sure to catch up on all of the episodes you've missed until then, and even give us a follow so you won't miss season four. Thanks again to Abba Krajewski and the impressive Asper Center alumni who shared their reflections on their time as students at the clinic and what it meant to and still means to them. Speaking of students, I want to give a last special shout out to all of the U of T students who have worked on the podcast this season and in the previous seasons too. Our students help generate ideas for episode topics. They develop the ideas, do background research, help find guests, draft scripts, and in the process, make great connections with members of the legal community. We couldn't make this podcast without their significant contributions. So thank you very much. Lastly, thanks to you, our listeners, for continuing to tune in. And we wish everyone a peaceful and happy holiday season ahead. Charter course, I will charter course. If we could just get the country to trust us. Charter course, south, east, west, and north. And along the way, we may find justice. Charter course, I will charter course. If we could just get the country to trust us. Charter course, south, east, west, and north. And along the way, we may find justice.